Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Man, we're going to jump right in because we got some ground to cover today. In fact, as we were just singing that last song, um, uh, talking about the God who breaks down every wall, that's kind of where we were at just a few weeks ago when we were in the story of Joshua taking them into the promised land, the walls of Jericho falling down, and it sort of dawned on me that now we're in Nehemiah during the stand month, which is rebuilding the walls. They weren't the walls that God knocked down Physically, they were the walls that God allowed to be destroyed because of Israel's disobedience and Judah's disobedience. And now we're looking at what does it look like to rebuild from the rubble as we're in this month where we're um, celebrating families. We're asking the question, how do we join God and what he's doing in the families in our community? Um, How do we help them rebuild circles of support? How do we help them uh, be strengthened? How do we care for the most vulnerable in our communities? So it's really what the stand is all about. Every year we roll around to this month and we want to remind ourselves that we were called to partner with God in seeing families restored, uh, seeing the most vulnerable protected, seeing circles of support set up for those who need it. And so that's what we're doing. We're using the story of Nehemiah to sort of dig into that. And uh, I'm going to jump right in here to risk and reward. Uh, The definition of risk is this, the possibility that something unpleasant or unwelcome will happen. The possibility that something unpleasant or unwelcome will happen. That's the definition of risk. And so just to be clear, by this definition, um, every time I go to the gym, it's a risk. In fact, I'm guaranteed something unpleasant or unwelcome will happen. Uh, Unless, of course, you're like, you know, going to Planet Fitness and then you can just go lay on that massage table and get a tan and say you went to the gym. But Other than that, like if I'm going to actually get the benefits out of a membership, I'm guaranteed that something unpleasant and unwelcome will most likely happen if I head to the gym. The thing is, I'm willing to go because the reward outweighs the risk in my mind, right? And and so when I look at risk and reward, Nehemiah, and we've already discovered this, Nehemiah is actually willing to pay a price in order to join God and what he's doing. He says the risk is worth the reward of partnering with God in something extraordinary. And he'll actually, he'll pay a price. He'll pay a price in three specific areas. The the first area he's going to pay a price in is this um, area of external attacks. You can be guaranteed anytime you choose to join God in what he's doing in the world, you want to step out and do something great. There are these external attacks attacks. These people who aren't part of what you're doing or they aren't part of um, what you're believing God for, and yet they will stand on the outside of the walls and yell at you, you'll never succeed. You'll never get free from addiction. You'll never be a good parent. You'll ne-. They, they just, they're the, the Tobias and the Sanballats in Nehemiah's story. They're outside the walls taunting you, saying you'll never succeed, you'll never accomplish this. And Nehemiah recognizes that this is going to be the case, and he's willing to pay the price 
of these external attacks to join God in what he's doing. But the other one is a little bit more challenging. The second area is these internal conflicts. Now, I don't know if you know this, and it's true of every church in the valley except for our church, but there are internal conflicts <laughs> in churches. And that's just because you are such amazing people. Um, no, the reality is it isn't just churches. Every community of people has internal conflicts. In fact, internal conflicts are inevitable because we have different priorities, uh, different giftings, different passions. The question isn't whether conflicts will exist. The real question is, how do we navigate them? That's what makes a community healthy or unhealthy, not the fact that conflicts will arise. Now, Nehemiah's community, the Israelites, the Jews, there are plenty of internal conflicts, and there are serious things that are going on in the community, inside the walls of the city, things like extortion and abuse and all kinds of stuff. And here's what Nehemiah knows, that if he is going to join God in engaging in those conflicts, rather than running from them or ignoring them, speaking truth into those situations, bringing justice to those situations, he will ultimately pay the price of relationships gone wrong. When you decide to join God in what he's doing rather than pretend that nothing is happening, you run the risk of doing damage to relationships because people don't always respond well. And Nehemiah says, that's fine because I actually want to join God in something big that he's doing and that means I'm the one responsible to address these issues and it may cost him relationships. These external attacks, these internal conflicts and then the last area is these personal sacrifices. Nehemiah recognizes that he will leave the comfort of his job security in Babylon in order to return to a community that is in shambles and disarray and under attack. And he says, I'm willing to personally sacrifice so that this thing succeeds. I'm willing to personally sacrifice so that the walls are rebuilt. And so he actually, in chapter 5, lists how much he is spending personally so that others can benefit. He says um, he's feeding 150 people at his table every day. And he tells you how many animals that is. He tells you um, he's not even taking his salary that he's owed as the governor of Jerusalem and Judah. And he says, I'm forfeiting all those things. But it isn't just that. It isn't I gave at the office. He says, I'm actually working on the wall with everyone else. Not only that, I'm, I'm requiring my entire household to come and work on the wall with everyone else. He could just tell everyone what they need to be doing. I'm a manager. I just need a shovel to lean on. But he joins them in what they're doing. In fact, I would say it like this. Nehemiah does not exact from the people anything that he does not expect from himself. In other words, he doesn't demand anything of them that he actually isn't willing and doing himself. That's leadership. He's joining them in the work of rebuilding the wall. And, and, and I would say this, our unwillingness to make personal sacrifices will limit our usefulness in God's mission. Our unwillingness to make personal sacrifices will limit our usefulness in God's mission. It's interesting because the older I get, and I'm assuming maybe the older some of you get, um, you begin to think, I sacrificed. Past tense. 
I, I gave back here. I did this back in the day. I laid my life down back here. And yet it is a life of sacrificial living that we're called to. And we can begin to easily excuse our current behavior, our current selfishness because of our past sacrifices. And yet God has something for you to join him in today in your sphere of influence, in your relationships, in your home, in your job place. Like, he's got something for you right now. And we could begin to think, well, I already did that back here. I guess that season is over. I can just tell you, according to the scriptures, the season of sacrifice for those who say yes to Jesus isn't over till you're dead. We'll dig into it here a little bit more in just a moment. But here's what I've discovered over the years. Sacrifices are much easier to make when I recognize, when I understand the value that they bring. I think for most of my life, I thought about sacrifice as a one-way exchange. I'm going to give something up for God, or I'm going to give something up for my spouse, or I'm going to give something up for a friend. That it was a one-way exchange. I was going to make a sacrifice for no other reason than making the sacrifice. And yet that is not at all how the scriptures describe sacrifice. In fact, if you went all the way back to the Old Testament where the language originates, where real sacrifices are being made, animal sacrifices are being made, a sacrifice is actually an exchange. I'm sacrificing this animal or I'm sacrificing these resources in order to acquire God's favor or his blessing or relationship being made right with him again. But a sacrifice, although in the Old Testament, was actually an exchange, which brings me to value propositions. I just want to give you a warning in advance here as we step into this. Um, over the next couple of minutes, I'm going to um, describe the value proposition of spending money on hunting equipment. <laughs> now, if you have convinced your spouse or significant other that the reason you spend X number of dollars is so that you get free meat, you may want to leave for a few minutes and just come <laughs> back. I'll let you know they are already on to you. They've figured out that that $41,000 doesn't actually get you $41,000 in free meat, right? In fact, if you just did some real simple math, let's say you got a, and believe me, this would be on the lower end, a $12,000 wheeler. You need the right one. I mean, I don't need air conditioning, but a heat would be nice. Anyways, but you got a $12,000 wheeler, and then you grabbed a $2,000 rifle and scope, um, I, I have a friend who um, allows the enemy to use him frequently to tempt me. He recently sent me um, a link so I could go check out a sweet scope. And the scope, just so you know, it's only $6,500 for, for your rifle. Um, now, granted, it, it actually shoots the animal, guts the animal, cleans the animal, and processes the meat for you. It's a sweet scope. But at least that's what he told his wife. Um, <laughs> But let's just say 2000 on a rifle and a scope. You picked it up used from a, from a friend, and then you grabbed yourself a $3,000 Arctic oven tent because, well, you don't want to die. And, um, and then you got um, your, your camo gear. It was Kuyu, so it was $4,000 instead of Sitka gear, um, which you can get at Thrifter's Rock. Um, and, then, and then you grab a $3,000 meat wagon, you know, because you've got to be able to haul the meat out of the woods, I mean, of course. And, and I mean, I'm just telling you, over the years, you're already $25,000 in on hunting equipment. Now, just so you know, at current market prices at three bears, 
prime grade A beef brisket, that is roughly 4,750 pounds of beef brisket that you could do whatever you want with. If you want to you know, figure it out, it's two pounds of meat per day for six and a half years on that. Listen, I, I'm just telling you, my wife knows for a fact that we do not go hunting for the meat primarily. You know why I go hunting? I go hunting for the memories. In fact, I have some pictures of my son and I over the years getting out and hunting. And I just made a decision quite some time ago that I was going to get out and spend some time with him in these environments. It's a value proposition. Now, you may disagree. You may not say, I want to spend my money in that same way. But for me, ultimately, I said, this amount of money, X number of dollars, is worth spending for these memories and moments with my son. That's why it's worth it to me. All of us have these things, these value propositions, why I'm willing to spend this, to sacrifice this, to give up this. It's in order to actually acquire this. But unless we're honest about those things, we will not begin to believe that sacrifice is actually valuable. Now, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus encounters a man who is just identified as the rich young ruler. How many of you would love to have that title? Hi, my name is Jonathan. I'm a rich young ruler. That's, he's just identified as the rich young ruler, and he's extremely wealthy, uh, apparently. And he comes to Jesus because he's realized that his money can't buy him one thing in particular, and that is eternal life. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, master, good teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? Which is the question everyone's been asking since the Garden of Eden. Like, how can I live forever? How can I inherit eternal life? And this guy wants to know the answer to the question. And so he comes to Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, well, if you keep all the law and the commandments, right, that's the first thing. And here's the guy's response to that. I have kept all of the law from my youth. Now, I actually think he's being honest. I don't think he's being um, sort of tongue-in-cheek or, uh, how many of you would say, I have kept all of the law from my youth? Right? No, because most of you sped on the way here today. Um, but this guy is talking about the law of Moses specifically. And in the law of Moses, he's not saying I kept every single commandment. He's saying even when I broke the commandment, I performed the required sacrifice to remain in right relationship with God. Jesus doesn't argue with him at all about this claim. It's within reason that he did exactly what he's saying that he did. But Jesus does add to it. He says, okay, then here's the other thing. He says, you must sell all your possessions, give the proceeds to the poor, and come and follow me. And we're told that at this declaration, he is very sad because he had a lot of stuff. Jesus isn't saying everyone has to sell everything they have and give it to the poor, what Jesus is doing is he's putting his finger on the thing that will eventually hinder this young man from actually fulfilling God's calling on his life. And it reveals something that's in his heart. He's saying, literally, this is not worth that. It's a sad declaration. Now, Peter and the other disciples are sitting there listening to this conversation. And I think Peter's gotten a pretty bad rap over the years. Um, I say that because I'm a lot like Peter. I just kind of sort of say whatever comes into my head, which can be really dangerous sometimes. But I think actually the other disciples love having Peter around. 
because Peter asks the question everyone else is thinking. All the other disciples are there, and Peter speaks up, and he says this to Jesus. Then Peter Peter began to speak, look, we have given up everything to follow you. So you just told this rich young ruler to give up everything, sell all of his possessions, give it to the poor, and come and follow you. Jesus, that's what we've done. So he's literally asking this question, what do we get out of this deal? Jesus, we did what you told him to do, so look at us for a minute. What are we getting out of this? And I tend to think about this as the moment when Peter should be rebuked again, like, get behind me, Satan. The the Lord should reply, "Um, I'm the sovereign God of all the universe. What do you mean you gave up everything? I left heaven and came here. Have you not seen my sacrifice that I'm making for you? But Jesus doesn't do any of that. He answers Peter's question. Peter wants to know, we've given up everything to follow you. What do we get out of this deal? And this is Jesus' response. Yes, I recognize that, Jesus replied. And I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property along with persecution. I just want to pause there for a moment because some of you may be like, eh, I'm not sure I want a whole bunch of sisters. Um, but but here's, here's literally what Jesus is saying. Peter, for everyone who has said yes to me and been rejected by their family, been abandoned by their family, lost their property because of their sacrifice, I want you to know you're joining a family that is larger than your wildest imagination. Like everywhere you go, whether it's Uganda or Thailand or wherever you go, you're going to find brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. You're going to find those people, and you are going to join a community of people who share everything they have with one another. Peter, Peter, you made a really good trade. And in this life, persecution will also come along with it. He goes on, And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. He doesn't rebuke Peter for asking the question. He actually answers the question and tells Peter, you made a good trade. Because at the end of the day, sacrifice is actually an exchange. And the question is, for what I lay down, is the reward worth it? And Jesus has no problem saying Yes, good trade. I would say this, the risk in responding to God isn't that in the very end, things will turn out poorly for you. The risk in responding to God in this moment is that you could begin really well and in the end be disqualified because you did not recognize the cost. We're guaranteed that in joining Jesus, it's going to turn out all right. It's going to exceed our wildest expectations. But the real risk is that you and I could actually join God and then discover that it costs more than we were willing to pay and end up disqualifying ourselves in the end. Which brings me to 100%. Maybe you've heard the saying before, you miss 100% of the shots you You miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. But there's also another version of that. You also miss 100% of the shots you take at the wrong target. 
my brother-in-law was over a while back, and um, he had never shot a bow before, and, um, and so I got my bow out, and I told him, you see these little pins up here, this top pin, this is how far away we are. You just aim that pin on the target where you want to hit and let her fly. And so he did, and after several arrows went through my fence, which was not the target, I realized I never told him that there's an eyepiece on the string back here that you actually put that dot in the center of that hole as you look through it. He's just like trying to get the dot. (laughs) What I realized is he wasn't even aiming at the target. Because the truth is, if you don't know what you're aiming at, you will miss 100% of the shots that you aim at the wrong target. It's really important for you and I to pause for a moment and say, what is the goal of my life? If you were to look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a long term for a shorter catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was formed in 1648, um, it consists of 107 questions and answers. Yeah, that's what short theology used to be like. Um, yeah, 107 questions with answers. The very first question, though, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the very first question is, what is the chief end of mankind? In other words, what on earth am I on earth for? Why do I exist? Why was I created? That's the very first question that's asked, and this is the answer to that question. Well, the chief end of mankind, the reason that you're on this planet is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what you were created for. There are all kinds of things that we do in life, but the purpose of your existence is that you would bring glory to God through your life and enjoy him forever. Now, here's a kicker. You're not going to like this, but whether you choose to follow him or not, whether you surrender your life to him or not, your life will actually bring glory to him either way. Whether it's through his justice and his right judgment, or whether it's through his mercy and his grace and his compassion, but either way, God's character, his nature, who he is, will be revealed by the way that he deals with us. But the invitation to you and I, the reason we were created, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if that were the goal of your life, then you would begin to reframe the way that you live. In fact, if you're wondering why marriage is so difficult, it isn't because of her or him. It's actually because your life was designed to glorify God and to enjoy him. And so the enemy will attack wherever he can, whether it's your children, whether it's your marriage. But his ultimate goal is not your destruction. His ultimate goal is to rob God of glory. You are the one who is caught in this cosmic battle. It's why the account of Job, Job happens to find himself unwittingly invited into a test that nobody told him he was having, which is a real challenge. But what's revealed in the test with Job as he loses everything in his life is that we discover that Job fundamentally believes in the goodness and the greatness of God. And here's what he says, though he slay me, even if he took my life from me, yet will I trust in him. 
What Job's acknowledging is that I so fundamentally believe in the goodness of God and that it extends beyond this moment, this life, right here, right now, that whatever came my way in life, I would still use my life to bring glory to God because I will enjoy him forever. That's really what the story of Job reveals, is that he fundamentally believes in the goodness of God. So what are you aiming at with your life? And what are the things that could pull you off track, that could get you out of sync with what God has called you to step into? What are the risk factors that a guy like Nehemiah faces as he joins God in this grand mission of seeing the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt and the glory of God made known in the city? The risk factors Nehemiah faces in pursuit of God, let me give you three of them. The first one is the risk of being distracted. I'm going to tell you a secret, and it's because I want you to be really, really proud of me. I have no games on my phone. That's right, this week. Um, <laughs> the, the, the reason's really simple. I go through these cycles from, from time to time, but what I realized is I realized I'm at the end of my day when, when I'm done um, answering all kinds of questions. I have um, decision fatigue. By the end of the day, I'm like, I don't want to answer one more question. And then I get home, and I have three little girls. You know what they have? endless questions, uh, like nonstop questions. And I get home at the end of the day and I'm like, ah, I need some reprieve. I need. And so I will, I'm so tempted, right, to just get on my phone and play some stupid game. Like my kids know we will never spend any money on games, but I'll get lost over here for a little while. And, and what I realize is I'm actually making an exchange in that moment. I'm allowing myself to be distracted by something that is so much less important than this calling to love my girls, to be present for my girls. It would be better if I quit answering Pete's questions during the day so that I was available to answer my girls' questions when I got home. Like, it's an issue of priorities. And so I'm like, I need to get some things sorted out. And so every now and then I go through these cycles where I just eliminate the things that I allow to be distractions because they're actually, they're not evil. They're just robbing me of something that's far more important. So Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1, Nehemiah 6, 1 Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained, though we had not yet set up the doors in the gates. So Sanballat and Geshem sent a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But I realized they were plotting to harm me, so I replied by sending this message to them. Oh, I would love to come to your party, but I'm engaged in a great work, so I can't come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? Four times they sent the same message, and each time I gave the same reply. These individuals are like well-respected in the region. They've married into money and influence. And, and all the people want Nehemiah to go and connect with them. And they've invited him to come and hobnob with them on the plane of, oh, no. And Nehemiah's like, oh, no, I'm not coming to hang out with you. And in fact, he says, listen, this would be great and all, but I'm actually engaged in something that's really important. And I will not be distracted by your invitation no matter how many times you give it. Four times, come hang out with us, come hang out with us, come hang out with us. Nope, 
not going to do it. I'm actually engaged in something that's really important, and I can't afford to stop for a moment. What he recognizes is they are terrified that he's going to accomplish the thing that God's called him to do. And the closer he gets to accomplishing it, the more frantic they get in ramping up their efforts. No, I'm not going to be distracted. Nehemiah runs the risk of being distracted and deterred from the mission that God has actually called him to, and he catches it. The second thing is not just the risk of being distracted, but the risk of being defamed. Here's what I can tell you. If you're going to join God in what he's doing in the world, whether it's in business or whether it's in education or whether it's in politics or whether it's in the church ministries, like, if you're going to join God in what he's doing, buckle up. People will attempt to defame you. They will speak poorly of you. It's inevitable. It not, not just because people are mean. There's certainly people who are just mean, but the reality is that we misunderstand each other. There are all kinds of reasons why people will spread rumors about you. Uh, over the years, um, let's just say I've had my fair share of, of this, uh, right? Because we've certainly had our challenges, and it's really painful sometimes, right? It's really painful when it's people that you're like, why didn't you just come and ask me if I said that or if I believed that or if I thought that or if I taught that? Like, you've got my phone number. You were at my house last week. Why didn't you just say it to me instead of 20 other people and now they're spreading it around to 30 other people? Listen, when you join God and what he's doing, there will be people who just don't like it and they don't like you and they will talk poorly about you. Get over it. Not just get over it. Don't let bitterness settle into your heart over it. The reality is this. If I went around trying to defend my name to everyone I thought somebody had said something negative to, I would waste all my time. In fact, you've heard me say it before. I don't need to go around defending myself. You don't need to go around defending yourself because character shows up in time. Who you are will always be revealed. Might be a short time, might be a long time, but character always shows up in time. And I love the way that A.W. Tozer says it. He says, he who defends himself will only have himself for his defense. But he who falls on the mercy of the sovereign God of all the universe will have the sovereign God of all the universe as his defense. Listen, my name, my reputation is really meaningless. It's God's name and God's reputation. It's his business to defend it. If you come and ask me, did you say, I heard so-and-so said, I'll just tell you the truth, but I'm not going to spend my time chasing my reputation around. Nehemiah runs into this exact same thing. They've come to him four times with an invitation to come chill, come hang out, get to know us. So the fifth time, they changed their tactic because they're getting more frantic. Nehemiah 6, 5. The fifth time, Symbolic's servant came with an open letter in his hand. You've probably seen open letters on the internet before. They're, they look like they're written to the individual, like, I just want you to know I wrote this letter to them. They're not to the individual, they're to you. They're for the purpose of defaming you. Uh, they're for the purpose of letting you know what they think about that person in the form of a letter they wrote to them. It's not for them. He shows up with an open letter. Anybody can read it along the way. It's not sealed. He shows up with an open letter in hand, and this is what it said. There's a rumor among the surrounding nations, and Geshem tells me it is true that you and the Jews are planning to rebel, and that is why you are building the wall. According to his report, you plan to be their king, you dirty dog. He also reports that you have appointed prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim about you, look, there is the king of Judah. You can be very sure that this report will get back to the king, so I suggest that you come and talk it over with me. 
He's moved from an invitation to a threat. Okay, listen, if you're going to respond to that, then I'm going to switch tactics. Now Nehemiah knows for sure what they're up to. So verse 8, I replied, you're an idiot. No, (laughs) I replied, there is no truth in any part of your story. You are making up the whole thing. They were just trying to intimidate us, imagining that they could discourage us and stop the work. So I continued the work with even greater determination. I love it. He's like, they were just trying to intimidate us. Like, they actually thought they could get us to quit the work by defaming us. So I just worked all the harder. You should let those types of situations in your life motivate you to get back to work with more fervor than ever. Because what you can be guaranteed is that when the enemy attacks with distraction and defaming you, the enemy is confident that you are accomplishing something great for God. Don't be deterred. The risk of being distracted, the risk of being defamed, and the last one is the risk of being discredited. The other two are something someone does to you. The third one is actually something that you run the risk of doing to yourself if you give in to their tactics. Nehemiah 6, verse 10 through 14. Later, I went to visit Shimei. Skipping over, he said, let us meet together inside the temple of God and bolt the doors shut. Your enemies are coming to kill you tonight. Listen, I'm here because I care about you. I'm not, I'm not threatening you. I'm not defaming you. I, I'm not just trying to distract you. I'm here to let you know there's danger coming your way. And what you need to do is you need to go into hiding. You need to recluse. You need to protect yourself. Let's go to the temple of God and let's bolt the door shut so that you are kept safe. And Nehemiah is on to it. Listen to Nehemiah's response. I love this. But I replied, should someone in my position run from danger? Should someone in my position enter the temple to save his life? No, I won't do it. I realized that God had not spoken to him, but that he had uttered this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. They were hoping to intimidate me and make me sin. Then they would be able to accuse and discredit me. It's like I'm I'm in the woods with my girls. This isn't a true story, to be clear. I'm in the woods with my girls, and a bear comes out. And I am terrified. They are terrified. And so what I do is I shove all three of them over, and I take off running. Like, should someone in my position who's responsible for these little girls behave in that way? Should I protect myself and leave all of them to be sacrificed? That's what Nehemiah is saying. He's saying, what kind of moron do you think that I am that I would abandon the very people I'm responsible to lead? I will not do it. And here's what he recognizes. If they convince me to do it, it will no longer just be someone accusing me of doing wrong. I will have done wrong. And now I will have allowed their distraction to become a discredit to my mission. And I'm not going to do it. I will not run and hide when I am called to lead the people in my family, the people I'm discipling, the people I'm pastoring, whatever sphere of influence you find yourself in. Nehemiah recognizes, no, no, I got an assignment. And my assignment is not hiding in the temple with the doors bolted. If I do that, I will actually discredit myself from leadership. 
Mm, that's a good word. Thanks, Pastor. You're welcome. I just, I, I hope you're encouraged. I am. I'm really encouraged. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. I'm going to break it down real quickly into two categories um, that I actually believe that um, these risk factors fall into. And the two categories are the unavoidable and the avoidable. There are things that are going to come your way, and some of them are unavoidable. They will happen, and others you can actually avoid when it comes to your purpose. And if you were to imagine that the orange in that circle um, is the things that will lead to failure, and the gray are the things that will lead to success, each time you make a decision um, in the category of the avoidable things, you increase your chances of failure at accomplishing what God has for you. Not your chances of being loved by God, but your chances of actually joining him in what he created you to do. In the unavoidable category, I would say um, things like disappointment, being defamed, difficulties, they're coming. Get used to it. You probably already experienced them at some level. In fact, Jesus experiences disappointment frequently with his disciples, with the religious leaders of the day, with the people who are in the crowd. But disappointment will come your way. It's inevitable. But also not just disappointment, but you will also run the risk of being defamed. If you join Jesus in what he's doing, there will be people who misunderstand you and falsely accuse you, and difficulties are guaranteed in the kingdom. They range. There are all kinds of different things, but difficulties are going to come your way. But in this avoidable category, in the avoidable category are things like being distracted, uh, things like um, being um, discredited. That's something that you would actually, you and I would do to ourselves or being disqualified. In fact, I would say, um, if you allow disappointment to lead you to distraction, I'm no longer focused on what I'm called to do, on who I'm called to be, you actually increase your chances of failure at accomplishing the thing God designed you to accomplish. If you allow um, being defamed to lead you to being discredited, when people talk poorly about you and then you just begin to run around defaming others, you could actually move into a place of discrediting your own ministry, your own reputation, your own work. If you allow difficulties to lead you to addiction, to behaviors that are outside of what God has called you, often this happens. It happens in pastoral ministry frequently. The pressures are too great, so I'm going to move into addiction. I'm going to move into pornography, or I'm going to move into an illicit relationship, or I'm going to steal finances from the church because I'm struggling financially, and I'll embezzle money from the church, or alcoholism. But if I allow those things that are difficulties in my life to lead me to a place where I substitute the Holy Spirit for a substance, I will actually end up disqualifying myself for the thing I was created to do. Nehemiah 6, verses 17 through 19. Man, this guy's got it hard. During those 52 days, many letters went back and forth between Tobiah and the nobles of Judah. For many in Judah had sworn allegiance to him. Verse 19, they kept telling me about Tobiah's good deeds, and then they told him everything I said. And he kept sending threatening letters to me to intimidate me. What is it? causes a guy like Nehemiah who steps into a challenging situation, who experiences all of these things as he's trying to accomplish God's mission, what keeps him on track? What keeps him from being deterred and led off course from the thing that God's called him to do? And I would say it's these two things. The first one is that Nehemiah fundamentally wants the glory of God to be made known in his generation. And the second is his confidence that God is not finished with his people. 
In fact, Nehemiah identifies this earlier in the story, and he describes how what he wants is the same God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the same God who led them out of Egypt through the sea, the same God who led them into the promised land. He wants this God to be known in his generation. Nehemiah is thinking, if there's one thing I could do, is that the name of the Lord would be made great in my generation, that my generation would not forget the power and the glory and the majesty of God. And so I want to join God in something great so that they could see him on display. That's what motivates Nehemiah. Over the past few weeks, you've gotten to hear stories from people right here in our church communities. You got to hear Connie's story, how um, when she had lost everything in Florida, when her husband had passed away, both of her children passed away, and she's like, what am I doing with my life? What comes next? And so she came to Alaska, and she met Cody and Sophie. And God places the lonely and families, and now she is part of a family again, with a sense of purpose again, with a community around her again. And then last week, you got to hear Shelley and, and Lewis's story of how God met them in their addiction after they had lost their children, and he led them to liberty and freedom, and now their family is reunited. And this week, you're going to hear the story of Jolene, Shelley's sister, and Jolene's story of what God was doing in her life and what she saw God doing in Shelley's life. These are stories of radical transformation. Check it out. So my name is Jolene Williams. I am married. Um, I've been married for 20 years. Um, we have six kids. So I was raised by my grandmother. And um, when I was 16 years old, I got to meet um, my sisters from my dad's family. What happened is I found out that she had moved up here to the valley and I had no idea she was living with my uncle. I had no idea that she had moved up here. So one of my other sisters actually told me and she was coming to the valley. So we had, um, we had a barbecue and I had her over. I've always known that she was, has been a heavy drinker. I visited a few times here and there. And so I, I got to see a little bit of it. During the time before this, we were, as a family, we're kind of closely watching what was happening because, you know, we saw where she was. A lot of our family members were mad at her and, and they were upset, but I knew the plans that God had for her. I believed them and I had hope for her when it felt like everybody else didn't have hope. And I know, knew, knew, knew what the Lord could do in her heart and with her life. So I knew, and I just knew that she needed her babies close to her. When I got the call, it was like, oh yeah, I'm totally taking the kids. It was, there was no, I didn't even, like I said, I didn't even blink. I totally didn't think about it. I'm like, I'm taking her kids. These, this needs to happen. But part of the cost was, is my kids, my, my kids having to share their affection with more kids, their cousins. Um, and, you know, it was a little bit of a strain on my marriage, too, because, you know, you're bringing in three more little ones and, um, you know, having to do school with them and having to do different things with them. So we live, we live in a 920 square foot house. I have six kids. We took three more. So there were 11 of us, one bathroom, two triple bunk beds in the girls' room. The boys had a bunk bed in their room and we added a toddler bed for her youngest boy. She went from, you know, jail to rehab. And um, so the really cool thing was that we did get to communicate quite a bit. 
and then um, I was able to relay a lot of that information and then um, she would send letters and there were some days she got to see the kids on Sundays and we'd go out and see her at the at the place even before my sister went into rehab my sister was this beautiful connector of family I mean even in any even in her addiction everybody came to her and so I really the Lord impressed on me so many times that she was going to be she was going to bring our family back together so we actually have a homestead it's outside it's on the other side of the little Sioux River and I really felt like um, that she was going to step into the matriarch role of our family and I told her I told her even before even when she was told addiction I said I believe the Lord is bringing you to that role at there's times that my family had no hope the rest of my family had no hope but I know I knew what the Lord would say a year later when Lou came back in the picture and he wanted to get clean and sober and he did and then the following year they got married and then they moved to the homestead and they're bringing all the generations back to our family and they're rebuilding it and it's it's amazing to have that hope in somebody who may be just wallowing in their addiction and to see what the Lord can do out of that is just absolutely incredible. And to be just this small of a part of it is so cool. Tell me again what you can't do. 900 square feet. That's a large tent, in case you were wondering. Like, I know Jolene well. In fact, she's at the Willow campus now. She was at this campus for a long time. And I don't know about you, but how many of you have had someone in your life who believed in you like she believed in her sister? And in the middle of the mess, in the middle of their addiction, in the middle of losing all of their kids, they believed that God had more for you. My mom was that person for me. In, in the middle of all of my mess, my mom is the one who never quit praying. I've, I've told you before, I was in Europe for a little while playing soccer, and um, I have no idea why. Like, I've, I've never been a kleptomaniac, but some friends convinced me that we should steal a whole bunch of souvenirs at these little shops in the Netherlands. And my mom, if you know my mom, this is like the worst thing you could ever do ever. I brought her back as gifts, things I had stolen from these shops in the these little wooden shoes and whatnot. And, and years later, when I finally came to Christ, I was like, I need to confess to my mom that she has pilfered material hanging on her Christmas tree. Like, like mom, I just need to let you know, I, I'm not going back unless you want to pay for the ticket and I'll see if I can find the shop, but I'll never find it again. And my mom to this day still hangs those little shoes on her Christmas tree as a reminder that the same God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God that met Joshua in the wilderness, the God who's meeting Nehemiah right now, the God who met Connie and put her in a family, the God who met Shelley and Lewis and led them out of addiction and reunified them with their children, the same God who's leading Jolene right now, that same God is still at work today. He's still rebuilding from the rubble of our lives. He's still establishing the walls and bringing safety and security and infusing us with purpose and destiny again. He knows the plans that he has for you. And your situation is far from hopeless. You were created with a purpose. We're going to sing a song together here. And, and what I want you to know, that and, the, and the lyrics are, I'm, I'm calling on the God of Jacob, whose love endures through generations. Oh God, my God, I need you. Oh God, my God, I need you now. 
And so Jesus, as we begin to lift our voices and worship together here, I would ask that you would show up and show off in the lives of your sons and daughters, that you would bring healing and hope and restoration into the situations in this room here and now. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.